0: Support for At Length, with Steve Scher, comes from the University of Washington Alumni Association. Welcome to At Length. I'm Steve Scher. On this program, we like to delve into ideas, tease them apart, get a sense of their implications and their nuance. What explains the rise of obesity among people around the world? Is there something in the environment that is affecting everyone? Human-manufactured chemicals, what some scientists are calling obesogens, may be the cause. In part two of our conversation with University of California Irvine scientist Bruce Blumberg, which took place at the University of Washington during our Weight and Wellness Lecture Series, we take a look at what can be done to reduce our exposure to these chemicals, what the regulators should be doing, and how a different approach to chemistry might keep more harmful chemicals from affecting human health. Professor Blumberg is a developmental biologist and a molecular endocrinologist. In 2006, he coined the term obesogens for certain human-made hormone-disrupting chemicals found in the environment. You said we're, uh, we're in a sea of endocrine-disrupting chemicals. That's correct. Pesticides?
1: Absolutely. Any particular kinds? Lots. Many different classifications of pesticides? That's correct. They don't. They're not all obesogens, but there are many, many classes of pesticides that are endocrine disruptors. The probably the biggest group are androgen disruptors, so testosterone disruptors, especially in Europe, and testicular cancer is rampant in Europe, especially in regions where it never was before, in Scandinavia, right? And it's increased at this, in, in lockstep with the increase in use of these antiandrogenic pesticides.
0: Are they, I thought Europe was trying to crack down on the use of pesticides. Are these the uh, alternatives that they ended up using in the last few years?
1: No, these are the ones that, that have been used. I see. What the Europeans are trying to crack down on is the use of endocrine disruptors. Right. Right. So the European Parliament voted two years ago to direct the European Commission, which is the regulatory body, to present laws to ban or restrict endocrine disruptors by 2015. It's here. Yeah. They haven't done it. So Sweden sued them. Sweden sued the European Union, the European Commission, for not enforcing the law, and many other countries have agreed. Why aren't they enforcing the law? Because the industry has created doubt. 17 toxicology journal editors got together and said, this doesn't make common sense. Right? This defies common sense and logic only to a toxicologist. It doesn't defy common sense and logic to an endocrinologist. They say, of course, the chemicals behave this way. What they didn't say is 16 out of those 17 were conflicted, had links with the chemical industry. Foods with
0: thinner skins, permeable skins, are, are they more likely to absorb these EDCs than foods like oranges with thicker skins? Depends on the chemicals.
1: So sometimes they're absorbed. More frequently, they lay on the skin. So to some degree, they can be rinsed off. But when you think about it, pesticides are applied in such a way as that they don't get washed off right so how are you going to wash them off right if they're if they're put in a formulation that makes them resistant to being washed off by the rain how effectively do you expect you can wash them off in your sink at home probably not so effectively meats
0: a lot of animals are treated with all sorts of chemicals are they
1: passing on EDCs as we eat them <clears throat> good question so I don't know to what extent meats are treated with endocrine disruptors, but I know probably a bigger problem is treating meats with antibiotics at subtherapeutic doses. Right. So if you, ask some, if you ask a microbiologist, how would you design an experiment to make a bacteria resistant to a drug? The answer would be, well, we would take a population of bacteria and we'd give it a small amount of that drug and we'd impair their growth a little bit and we'd give them a small amount, a little bit more over time, until a resistant population grows out. So we give farm animals subtherapeutic doses of antibiotics to help them tolerate crowding and the kind of conditions that, that they're sometimes grown in. And that is a recipe, that is the precise way you would create resistant bacteria, which unfortunately we have. Yeah. And hormones, right? So some of those hormones. Animals also, hormones. Yeah. So, do those they are work? Estrogens. Right. So, are they
0: working in concert with those? Is there a, is there a multiplier effect that we know about between uh, the antibiotics, the hormones?
1: I, I would say that's a possibility. I don't think mm-hmm. that, that, that there's a certainty, but there's, there's some yeah. evidence that early life antibiotic exposure leads to obesity later in life. We know that exposure to estrogens very early in life can lead to obesity later. Although, paradoxically, estrogens later in life lead to leanness. And every woman who's undergone menopause knows that the loss of her estrogen means she gains some weight. What's going on? So that the lack of estrogen changes the way the fat works. Estrogens early, around the time of birth, program the animal or presumably the human to gain weight later. Given later in life, estrogens cause leanness. So we give animals estrogen so they accumulate lean muscle mass. So they get more muscular, they weigh more.
0: You know, I see plastic packaging showing up in all sorts of places, uh, liners of paper coffee cups, Mm -hmm. liners of uh, tuna tin cans.
1: Are they sloughing off these EDCs? Yes, they are. So endocrine disruptors are present in, in food packaging, so there's a great review on that by a person I know named Jane Munka who's the chair of a food packaging forum in Europe. And the, the reality is that food packaging of all kinds, whether it's uh, plastic wraps, or whether it's the liner of, of boxes and cans and, and organic milk cartons for that matter, um, or whether it's bottles that contain liquids, all leach endocrine-disrupting chemicals of one kind or another
0: that's a lot of things that we're exposed to that we are ingesting the argument has been no these things are stable it's okay they're stable that's why we're putting them in our foods was there any study done on whether they were stable before they were put into the packaging
1: you would expect that that had been done but i don't think that much has been done yeah it's been done now people have measured leaching of chemicals from from water bottles. There's a German guy named Martin Wagner who's done a lot of studies of chemicals that leach out of bottled water in Germany. He's even identified some. Some of them are estrogens, some of them are antiandrogens. They shouldn't be there. You said you have a wife, you have a child. You are living in this world. I am. What do you do
0: to avoid these EDCs? Mm-hmm.
1: So what we've always done, my wife is someone who believes very strongly in making fresh food. She loves to cook, so we don't eat very much of any packaged food. We don't eat out a lot because she's such a great cook that we only go out to eat to give her relief from her kitchen duties, but we tolerate that the food's not going to taste as good. So make fresh food from ingredients that you know what they are. If that fresh food is organic, so much the better, and to the extent that you can afford it and that you can... Uh, incorporate organic food into your life, that's a, that's a health benefit, that is an investment in your future, in lower health care costs and lower amount of sickness and disease. Try to avoid plastic in contact with food. Don't store liquids in plastic bottles, don't store food in plastic containers, use glass and stainless steel, they work perfectly well and they don't contaminate the food.
0: Do you know how quickly exposure contaminates food? For example, I go to the grocery store, I shove lettuce in a plastic bag, I come home, I pull it off.
1: Yeah, I I don't know that anyone has studied that, and I wouldn't claim that I don't do that myself. I go to the grocery store and I put it temporarily in a plastic bag, but I don't store it there. All you can do is the best you can do, right? You can't live in fear of the endocrine disruptors that are everywhere. I I would bet that the stress of living in fear is equally as bad as the effects of the the chemicals. So that's not the answer. The answer is do the best that you can. The people that need to to be particularly vigilant are women of childbearing age, women who are pregnant, women with young children and and youngsters. That is the most susceptible population. So if you want the most bang for your buck, policy-wise, that group of people needs to be informed your behavior is critical for the future. this is a weight and
0: wellness series that you're a part of and many of the messages have been yes it's difficult but we can lower our weight we can get to wellness by following some some simple strictures you know eat less eat healthy eat vegetables those are all true you would not disagree with that but at the same time the obesogen hypothesis is
1: saying we are living in a world that is reprogramming our our bodies it certainly is the case And eating fruits and vegetables is a good idea. They especially need to be organic. Because we found, we've identified six different fungicides that are obesogenic. Six different ones? Six different ones of totally different chemical structure, fungicides that are obesogenic. Where do we use fungicides primarily? We use them on fruits and vegetables. So if anything in your life is going to be organic, it should be those. You've given this talk, you've shown the science, it's been peer reviewed.
0: What's a good policy step? for this government to take next?
1: Um, if If I could wave my magic wand, I would transform the industry such that anyone who wanted to sell a chemical would have to prove it's safe, rather than someone else having to prove to a substantial certainty that it's harmful to humans before it can be banned. I would reverse the standard of proof, put the proof of safety make them prove that a chemical is safe to a substantial certainty, rather than making some poor government or, or, or academic scientist prove that it's harmful. Because the end result of the current system is that the, the entities who make money from selling products are not the ones who bear the burden of the costs associated with adverse consequences that may be discovered in the future. They just say, oops, sorry, bankrupt. Bye-bye. What is the solution to these endocrine disruptors? So I think that in in an ideal world, government would ban endocrine disruptors and they would fall out of use. Uh, In the world that we live in, I think that that's unlikely to happen, and that when you ban one endocrine disruptor, we substitute, the industry substitutes a different one. You ban bisphenol A, then they substitute bisphenol F. You ban DDT, they substitute chlorpyrifos, and on and on and on. I think that the real answer comes from green chemistry. So let's make chemicals that are inherently without hazard. So it's one thing to say, okay, a chemical's hazardous, and then if we multiply hazard times exposure, we get risk, and we can do risk assessment. Better still if the chemical is not hazardous. So I and many other people in the environmental health community are working together with green chemists to help them design chemicals that are not endocrine disruptors. Green chemistry. So what, what is that, and how is it that you can make something not, not hazardous? Green chemistry is a philosophy of synthetic organic chemistry. and There's 12 principles of green chemistry. I haven't memorized them all, and I won't go through them all. But the, the fundamental um, concept of green chemistry is to imitate nature right do reactions chemical reactions at atmospheric temperature and pressure use water as a solvent don't use tremendously toxic solvents that create lots of toxic waste try to make molecules themselves that are not hazardous they're not poisonous they're not endocrine disruptors that don't have any bad properties and then use them to build the products that you want so if a chemist has 10 candidate monomers for a new plastic and I can show him that three of those are endocrine disruptors he's going to work with the other seven and ignore the three or he'll modify them so that they're not endocrine disruptors and then we end up with products that were designed to be safe and effective that are not endocrine disruptors and they're not toxic and they don't have other undesirable properties I think that's the answer does that have to be regulated or is that the market somehow going to uh, get us there I think that we've already learned that, right, that green chemicals on the market, people buy them. People are starting to realize that our environment does not have an unlimited capacity to absorb our waste, that the capacity is finite. And you can look at different things. You can look at global warming. You can look at the plastic pollution in the oceans. You can look at lots of things and realize that the ecosystem has a finite capacity to tolerate being dumped on, if you will. So. People are realizing that, and, and they're making greener choices. I'm very impressed with what I see here at the University of Washington with their, their commitment to reduce all kinds of waste. And it's not so difficult to do if people get in the frame of mind to do that. So if you can buy a plastic bottle that you know, has, a, has a green chemistry seal of approval that you know is not an endocrine disruptor, people are going to buy it. They're already doing it. They're buying bisphenol A-free water bottles, unwittingly not knowing that they have bisphenol S and bisphenol F instead. What I call the whack-a-mole game that industry plays. So if you ban one chemical, or they're discouraged from using one chemical, what do they do? They say, what's the nearest relative of this that I can use that fits into my process that gives the same product? So there's lots of bisphenols, and they all are endocrine disruptors. There's more data on some than on others. So the strategy is, let's pick something for which there's not so much data, and that buys us 10 or 15 years is this a bit far field with this thinking in mind
0: to raise the question of for example uh, roundup ready crops when you say the you know industry could mm-hmm. do green chemistry but really the industry is going to we're going to we're going to fortify crops we're going to get crops so, so we don't have to spray them we don't have to put fungicides on them, we don't have to put herbicides on them because they're
1: inside the crop itself that's a serious can of worms so this idea of of gmo crops i have mixed feelings about there's some that i'm vehemently against and there's some that i'm not so troubled by so roundup ready crops Pesticide, herbicide-tolerant crops, I have a big problem with. Um, To put beta-carotene into rice and make golden rice, that doesn't trouble me so much. So it's not so much the gene. So I'm I'm not someone who is particularly frightened by the fact that there's a gene in this rice plant that didn't used to be there. Maybe that's a problem for some small fraction of people. But, you know, my daughter is one of the 2% of Americans who are anaphylactic to peanuts. We haven't banned peanuts, nor should we we should disclose where they are so the people who are sensitive can avoid it. So what's going on with the herbicide-tolerant crops is that the companies lie, very frankly. They say that because this crop is Roundup-ready, we're gonna use much less Roundup. And they say that, but history shows otherwise. So the use of Roundup, since Roundup-ready crops were first licensed, the use of Roundup has gone up 200-fold. And what you don't know, and I'm gonna tell you now, Is something that's really going to scare you. The biggest use of Roundup in the United States is not on Roundup-ready crops. It's sprayed on normal crops at harvest time to desiccate them, to dry them out and kill them so they can be harvested more effectively. So essentially, all of the corn and wheat and soy in this country, even non-GMO corn and wheat and soy, is desiccated by Roundup at harvest time. And what that means is that the, the herbicide is on the final product. It's supposed to be sprayed early on as the seeds are sprouting and be gone by harvest time. Here they're doing just the opposite. They're spraying it on the crops to harvest them. And that is the biggest use that's gone off the charts in the last five years. If you want to know more about that, you should talk to Chuck Brenbrook in Washington State. Yeah. He's the foremost authority on that. That is the biggest use these days. That's just out of the blue. That's, that's frightening. I happen to be on the (laughs) scientific advisory board of a study that's funded by Russian and European sources called the Factor GMO study that's supposed to study the potential toxicity or safety of Roundup-ready corn. Both the corn itself, minus plus the genes for Roundup resistance, and the corn minus plus Roundup at the allowable human dose, the, the allowable American dose, the allowable European dose, and a lower dose. That study is ongoing, and we'll know the answer in a couple of years. So I'm not actually doing it. I'm just participating in overseeing that the design is reasonable. They already told us Roundup is no threat to human health. I- I've heard that many times. But what is it based on? It's Is it truth by repeated assertion, or is it truth, truth based on peer-reviewed data? No. You're telling me right now it's truth by repeated assertion, because we don't have the data. Yeah, the data. Some data exists, but Monsanto's sitting on it.
0: Oh, is that right? Yeah, the, it,
1: that's another thing I would like to see. So, if you want to sell some chemical and you've done safety testing on it, you need to publish those results. They need to be available for public scrutiny. And industry says, no, no, those are our trade secrets. And that's not true. Their trade secrets are the composition of matter patents that say we patent a structure that looks like this and these. Chemicals here and there. That's their patent. Their patent is not the safety. The patent is the composition of matter. So it's not intellectual property at all. But what are they arguing? They're arguing, oh, but if we release that, you'll see the in in the data will be the composition of the, of the thing well, we've it's made. It's already known. It's already, it's in the patent. Patents are published. You can you can go to the patent office and look it up. A patent is not a patent is a license to sue. That's what it is. So a patent says that I I, I, I own this this thing, this this piece of intellectual property, and if you use it without paying me, I can sue you and force you to do that. That's what a patent is. So what they're saying is that the safety of their chemicals is their intellectual property that they have to protect. And I say no. Their intellectual property is the chemical and how it works and what it works against. But the safety is something that it's, it's part of the public trust.
0: Professor Bruce Blumberg spoke at the University of Washington in May 2015, part of the Weight and Wellness Lecture Series at the UW. He studies exposure to hormone-disrupting chemicals in the environment and their effect on human health. You can find part one of this conversation and all our conversations at At Length by searching At Length with Steve Scher. You can find us on iTunes and on Stitcher. You can also find us on the homepage of the University of Washington Alumni Association and the University of Washington Graduate School. Thanks for listening. Support for At Length with Steve Scher comes from the University of Washington Alumni Association.